A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What yeah. did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six oh, I'd like to have a good evening. I'd say it to your face, I'll say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them. What you doing down here, you Johnny man? <laughs> Come on, we'll go to your favourite, a baseball game. I'd be more than happy to have you boys come on over. I'll get you guys garlic fries and anchor steamed beer. Duffman can never die. Only the actors who play him. Oh yeah! It's the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. Owen, Ken and Murph all here. Hello, hello. Hello guys. And here is Studio A, Murph, Studio A of KMBR Radio in downtown San Francisco. US Murph has some sway in this building. Studio A sounds like it should be the best studio. I, I mean, I haven't gone into all of the other studios, but this is a pretty good studio. So I'm just going to say he gave us, he just kicked out Whoever it is that's supposed to be in here right now. I, he could be banging on the door behind me for all I care. I don't know. We're in here now, Owen. <laughs> We're no one's moving it. in San Francisco, thanks to Erlingus. We have another podcast out now featuring our chat with Brian Murphy inside AT&T Park, home of the World Series champion San Francisco Giants. We had Seamus McDonough in studio, a Meath man who once fought Evander Holyfield in the early 1990s. But I think the star of our trip so far, Ken, certainly the creature you've connected with most, mm. is little Mr. Puszczek, the house cat in our nice Airbnb place in the Mission there. Well, he's not that little, Owen. He is a. Um, I he's mean, little chap. he's an obese Siamese cat. <laughs> um, but I, I'm glad that you brought him up, actually, because I've I, I was a little surprised at the way that you related to him. How so? Well, first of all, on our, on our first night, you you uh, expressed concern that while you slept, Mr. Pushek might attack you. Well, this is this is true. This is true. He honestly did, and I I was kind of looking at him thinking. What? You know? But, yeah, you thought... You thought well, he I just wanted to go for a nap on the couch, right? And I was mm. thinking, he mightn't like me in and around that couch. Mm. This is a house cat. It's his house, not my house. Yeah. And I, he might jump on me and, I don't know, jump on my face or something. Sure yeah, that was, that, that was the phrase used, jump on my the, face. I don't know how the whole cat And I was thinking works. of those face huggers in, in Alien, you know, this yeah. Ridley Scott nightmare that was clearly... Going on in your head when you looked at Mister <laughs> Mister Pushek, the cuddly, yeah, cuddly, furry little creature that he is. Yeah, those things really didn't look like cats at all. No, 
No, and they weren't they weren't house trained. They weren't used to humans at all. No. Whereas Mr. Buchek lives there, and he's he's quite happy. And cats, domestic cats, don't attack human beings. You know, it's the the other thing. Owen was that. Listen, every well, day gonna, is a school day. You know, like, you know that's not. I'm gonna, I mean, yeah, okay. I'm going to grant you that first one. That's if you've educated me. I feel I feel like I understand cats better. They don't. They aren't all willing to attack me at first sight. Even though mm. a few of them have given me dirty looks over the years. We have mentioned this cat's weight. You know. I, I know where you're going. I, know, I don't want to say know, weight problem. I know where you're going Because, I mean, who says it's a problem? I know yeah. where you're going with this. It's his weight. He seems happy with it. And, uh, you know, when you, in the morning, when you get up, the cat comes over. It's the only time he ever shows any interest. But he has he has come, and when you're getting out of the shower, I, I, I have had him come over and stare at me. Um, but but I did see, uh, when I was, you know, in the morning, he comes in and he starts, he starts mewing, and then he rubs himself against your leg. Mm. He sort of rubs, you know. You know the way cat does. And it's clear what the cat wants. So you and me, Karen, both of course. obediently went to the, to the sort of pantry. Snack yeah. drawer. There is, a, there is a press which has a picture of the cat, a cat's smiling face on it, and said, my snacks are in here. So I went over to get out some stuff, picked out like the chicken balls or whatever, mm-hmm. gave him some, some Well, chicken. it's what you do, Ken, you know? Yeah, because he's got, he's got this stuff obviously put out just so that he doesn't starve if someone just doesn't care about him mm. at all. Or, Owen... If somebody like you comes along, who obviously looks at the cat and thinks to himself, this cat has had enough to eat. We are pretty clear here, right, in saying that you're you're feeding him snacks, right? I'm looking over that bowl of food that never dwindles. He's got this massive bowl of these little round He doesn't things. like that horrible stuff, whatever it is. Well, it, it keeps him going. It should keep him going. But apparently this is a cat with a refined taste in food and will only eat snacks. And you boys are... He wants I, to eat I think a few too many visitors over the years have been too kind. Uh, along, along well, the I, I, say, I say, hey, what's the problem? Yeah. What's the, you know, why not? Why not he's give not the, the little fellow what he wants? No, he's not. No, let's let's make his autumn and winter years as as, as enjoyable as possible. I was well insulated as possible. Big news, folks. We had mentioned before travelling over that we were planning a live show and it's going to happen on Wednesday night. It's in Foley's Irish Bar at Union Square. Although, Murph, I know you like to hear the full name and address. Please. Johnny Foley's Irish House on O'Farrell Street. <laughs> the cellar of, of that particular... That will, uh, it is definitely an Irish, a bona fide Irish bar, I believe. Doors open at 5.30pm. We'll record at 6 o'clock. US Murph is going to be there. Richie Sadler is going to be flying in. Richie Sadler will be there too. We'll throw some free stuff at you. It doesn't matter what it is. It's free, so therefore you'll take it. T-shirts, pencils, mugs. That kind of stuff, yeah. So if you are around the area and you want tickets, there's a limited amount of them, so please email us, secondcaptainsatirishtimes.com at secondcaptainsatirishtimes.com. You can get on the website for a bit more detail, secondcaptains.com there. It's time now for Ken Hurley's report on sport. So I think for the first time ever we're going to start talking about the Danish League Championship. Um, Overdue, if you have. The Danish League Championship, uh, the decisive, well, not the decisive game, I mean, it was kind of one of these title deciders, but it's not really a title decider because one team is so far ahead that the other team, even if they had won, would only be delaying the probably, probably the inevitable. Um, but the two teams involved are FC Midtjylland, Midtjylland owned, and uh, Copenhagen, the giants of Danish football, ten times league winners, of course. Um, whereas Midtjylland are a kind of, I wouldn't say village team, but not really. You know, this this will this will be their four, uh, their first ever league title. So they're, four, they're, they're with four games to go. They're twelve points clear with a better goal difference. This is a, as a result of having beaten Copenhagen last night two nil. Uh, you know, this kind of set the seal on it. Now the interesting thing about these guys is that they are, um, and they ha- and you may have come across. There's been quite a lot of uh, international media attention for them over the last couple of months because 
uh, they're essentially at the vanguard of what's been happening in football in terms of uh, the sort of data revolution that everybody's been talking about in football. They're actually now they're actually doing it, and they're the first thing to kind of who are doing it, who have managed to, you know, who are winning the title. It's yeah, as it's interesting to see that because a lot of the time when this is talked about in football terms, certainly up until recent years, I get the sense. I don't think it's quite to the level of detail that we see in other sports. And you nearly feel as though people are talking about about that side of the game without actually necessarily committing fully to it. Well, maybe the biggest clubs don't feel like they have to, but a club like this think that this actually, if you go 100% this way, or whatever Moneyball style, you might have a chance. Well, the big clubs are all doing it, but um, these, okay. There's a link between Mitchell and Brentford FC. The link is the owner, uh, Matthew Benham who uh, is essentially a financier and a gambler who managed to get very rich from betting on football. This is a guy who understood how to beat bookies quite consistently and uh, became rich enough anyway to buy two football clubs, uh, Brentford and Michelin. So Brentford uh, got promoted last year from League One to the Championship. In February, they announced that Mark Warburton, their manager, is going to be leaving the club no matter what happens. Even if they get promoted to the Premier League, he's gone. Uh, they actually they ended up losing in the semi-final to, to uh, Middlesbrough, playoff semi-final. But they did announce in February that, okay, Mark Warburton's out of here. It doesn't matter whether he gets promoted, which is a very strange thing to do, especially when your manager is quite popular, fans all like him, players seem to like him, he's doing well. And then you say, no, he's, he's, he's got to go, he's not the man. Um, I mean, he, I think, was part of the decision that he wasn't going to be the man because... Uh, it seems that Matthew Benham had wanted to, well, in the words of Warburton, he said he thought mathematical modelling was going to become a much bigger part of what was happening. He said, I think, you know, I think this has done a lot of good things at Brentford, and there's things I like about it, uh, that, it's, that it's, you know, brought into the club, but I think it's kind of, come, you know, it's going to become a more dominant part. As a manager, he's not necessarily going to be uh, making the decisions anymore. Isn't um, the, the whole idea, though, of data analytics that you either commit to it 100% and thereby you get results that are actually pure you can say right purely based on what we've done these are the results that we've gotten if you're doing it kind of piecemeal then the whole thing is surely doomed well there was a really um, there was a really interesting line on this by a guy Rasmus Ankerson Rasmus Ankerson is the chairman of uh, Midgill and has also it, ju- it was just announced over the weekend is going to be the co-director of football they don't, not just one but two directors of football um, the co-director of football at Brentford um, now this uh, Ankerson is a kind of a young guy like early 30s uh, you know, hair kind of slicked back. Look, if you look at his website, he's he's got a uh, he's written a, co- a couple of books. You know, the talent gold mine, this kind of stuff. So he, you see him with the in these with this sort of slim um, microphone thing. You know, <laughs> always thing. impressive. Yeah, yeah the uh, you know tight uh, black jumper or a suit with a t-shirt in a sort of a TED Talk type setting, giving an absolute knocking it out of the ballpark in terms of a kind of a corporate motivational speech, you know, the five secrets of successful business, you know, this kind of stuff. Um, his his website actually says, no buzzwords, no crap, no empty theories, only real-life examples and result-driven insights in how to grow world-class performance. So uh, he, uh, you know, as I said, is a writer and came out with an interesting phrase to uh, a Dutch uh, journalist who interviewed him a couple of months back in the publication The Correspondent. Uh, essentially, he uh, said to him, what are we decided that we'd redesign the club based on the following question. What would a football club look like if it had no human eye or ear? And he said, of course, it turns out you need some kind of a human element, 
But if you start out saying, oh, we want it to be a mix of human, you know, and, and statistics, then you're not going to be ra- you're not going to be radical enough to actually make any real changes. So they kind of took a very radical starting position like that. And I mean, how does this work in practice? Um, you know, I mean, they've scored a ridiculous number of goals from set pieces, for one thing. They keep, um, you know, they're doing a lot of work on this. You know, he had ideas. There was a, a story Grant Wall had done with him um, quite recently in Sports Illustrated where he was talking about, you know, getting players to work on kicking as just as golfers do with their swing. You know, essentially this kind of inter uh, multidisciplinary approach to sort of coaching, to training, and so on. But an interesting one, uh, which he talked about in this Dutch interview, was uh, with scouting. He said, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not interested in the scout's opinion of a player, as a player. I'm not a, the scout is not there to, to look at the player and come back and tell me if he's any good. I already know he's good. Otherwise, we wouldn't be looking at him. I know that this player is good. All the scout can do if he comes back with an opinion on the quality of the player as a footballer is confuse the issue. He doesn't know. He's just like a, you know, carbon blob, you know, with, with, not, with delusions of grandeur who actually has no real idea what this guy's been doing over a long period of time, you know, whereas I actually have information on essentially everything he's been doing on the field. And I have a much better idea. What I want my scout to do is go out there and try and find out if the guy is essentially the sort of guy who's going to fit in here with what we're doing. So you're just looking for the psychological side of it. Exactly, scout. yeah. You're not, you're, not, you're not a technical scout Is he scout trouble, anymore. essentially? It's just, this is really it. So you can see how this is already caught. This is automatically going to raise a bunch of hackles. I mean, every manager who wants to be a manager, you know, and not a sort of, you know, team player, <laughs> part of a team, part of a management team, you know, in which there's also, you know, statistical people, um, sharp-suited, uh, 31-year-old uh, co-directors of football, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, every scout, all those men, remember we were, Michael Calvin's book, The Nowhere Men, you know, lonely hours driving up the motorways, stopping at the service stations, Right, you know, in search, in search of the next Raheem Sterling or Jack Wilshere, right? All those guys. Um, a lot of supporters, too, as well, I think. You know, kind of, it's just, it's there's something a little bit, ooh, kind of frightening about it. And also, there's, there's a kind of a skepticism that people naturally have. I mean, say the the, uh, the idea that foot, uh, you can ultimately find a better way of playing football by using uh, analysis of data by using sort of statistics. Well, and the, the classic kind of argument to it is, has always been, well, the problem is football's actually just too complicated for them. Football's really complicated. There's loads of people involved. They're all running around in kind of a chaos. Uh, it's not really, it's not measurable. And the, you know, the, the comparison would be with baseball. Baseball is a, is a game in which there's like uh, discrete activities. You know, a, a pitcher throws a ball. The guy can hit it in a number of ways. He can hit it to X number of places. You know what I mean? It's, it's you can break it down and sort of measure individual parts. And this is this is why baseball was maybe the first sport in which this happened. You know, Bill James did it. The answer to that now, though, is that actually it isn't too complicated anymore. It's just not. I mean, people, anyone who says that football is too complicated to be broken down into numbers doesn't understand how powerful computers now are. I mean, they're terrifyingly powerful. When Bill James was doing all that with baseball, he was doing it himself, you know, like in, by hand, you know, co- copying figures out of baseball almanacs and, you know, having labor- laboriously generating. These. This is the kind of stuff that a computer now could do in literally two seconds. You know, it wouldn't even take two seconds. Um, the idea that, that a football match is too complicated, well, it's not. It really isn't. When you have got uh, the, the kind of increases that you've seen in computing power now, 
it's it's unimaginable from from the situation 20 years ago. I mean, we're in a city now where all of this is kind of happening. I mean, reading just recently about this, um, it's quite amazing some of the stuff that's happening. I mean, obviously, you know that Google and, and Facebook and Apple, whatever, any of these companies that like control vast quantities of data that you've just signed over to them by virtue of using their free stuff, you know. And there's, there's actually an article about this in the Irish Times just the other day about like de-googling your life. You know, why is is having free email really that great a deal when they, in fact, in exchange for that, you allow them to know every single detail of your life, every single detail of your life, almost every thought that passes through your head. You know what I mean? It's not just where you are, what you buy, how who do you, you meet, who you talk to. Iron. Yeah. It's, it's literally, how do you clean you know, every single thought, that, every single idle thought that passes through your head is now logged. But in return, you do get a free email account with ever-increasing storage. Like, I mean, it's a pretty good deal. But like, um, okay, so, so all of these companies have been using for a while this, the, these huge troves of information that they, that they have from their users in an attempt to try and train up their little artificial intelligence programs to, to recognize stuff. Like, you know, how do you train a program to recognize a human face, you know? They can do that now. It's pretty. They can recognize human faces in photographs about as well as a human can. You know, cats. You know this kind of stuff. But the, the interesting. I mean, this is all kind of labeled data, like stuff that, that the people the users have already labeled. Oh, you know, here are some people. Here's a cat. You know, pictures of this kind of stuff. What I was reading recently, uh, Google had like a um, had a, you know a little research team at Google, essentially just showed uh, a new little uh, AI that they had. A load of, you know, millions, of, it didn't have to watch all this, they just mm. fed in the millions of kind of unedited hours of YouTube footage, with giving it no idea of what anything that it's looking at is. I mean, it's, it knows nothing, it doesn't know anything, it's like a blank state, you know. Um, all it has is the kind of ability to learn about, you know, it has a kind of a certain, look, I'm not going to pretend to understand, right, how this computer is able to learn stuff. But what it does is it watches all this, well, it doesn't watch all this video, kind of processes it all. And it kind of figures out, okay, this is this particular thing that I keep seeing cropping up again and again is a particular category of object. It, it's not that it would come up with the word human, but it would know that that was a thing, as distinct from, say, a cat, as distinct from, you know, a car. It would kind of figure out, okay, these are, I see all these things that there are, and kind of figure out, you know, this is what we're talking about. Okay, this kind of begin to make sense of the world under its own theme, which is kind of, okay, that's... Uh, that's a pretty sophisticated sort of situation, you know. That's not something that um, that's not something that was available a very, very short period of time ago. The idea that a football match is beyond the comprehension of a computer, the idea that a football match is beyond the comprehension of a system like this, to sort of go through, look at loads of them, figure out what the patterns are, figure out what it means when someone is, doing, you know, behaving in this way and what kind of is that's wrong. That's definitely wrong. Now you have to kind of accept that. These things are going to like really figure it out. This is tying in with Stephen Jarrett, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, there was just a point in, that I saw. Uh, I mean, I was d- d- talking about Gerard in terms of he's a kind of a player. Your man, the, the guy Rasmus Ankerson had mentioned this guy, uh, Tim Sparv, uh, who they signed from a German team. Uh, this was in the correspondent again. He said, yeah, I mean, Tim Sparv didn't really stand out on any of the traditional metrics. What he did was he played for Greuther Fürth in the German second division. We knew that Greuther Fürth were a really good team because our model told us they, they get a mathematical model which ranks all the teams in Europe, you know, in, in like one big table. They don't split them into different countries. Um, so Greuther Fürth, they, who are in the German second division, they figured out were actually 
they they reckoned they were a lot stronger than German second division. You think this team is probably not very good, but they reckon actually this team is a lot stronger than people think. Uh, Tim Sparv is one of their most consistent players, so they buy him on that basis. He doesn't stand out like he doesn't do. He's not a player that spectators notice, but they reckon an incredibly effective player because he uh, he does all of these things that spectators don't notice. Uh, he does he positions himself really well. You don't notice that he's doing something amazing because all he seems to be doing is strolling out with the ball. Uh, he's not flying into a tackle. He's not uh, sprinting to dispossess an opponent because he's just standing in the right place. Yeah, Michael Lewis wrote a famous article a few years back that I read about... Uh, the No Stats All-Star. The no Stats All-Star, yeah. I think he was actually a Houston Rockets player. His name escapes me at the moment. Very similar basketball guy. Not great stats. And basketball would have been, at that stage, probably more advanced even than football is now. Nothing in particular was showing up in this guy's stats that would lead you to believe that he's a really good player. But exactly all that kind of, to call it unseen work, is probably not very refined from my point of view in terms of understanding it's, of this kind it of is, stuff. It's a kind but he's of making, stuff. he's guarding Kobe Bryant, and he's making Kobe Bryant shoot from a marginally more difficult position, and that doesn't show up in anything. Bar Kobe Bryant missed a shot, uh, but that was his, he missed a shot in part because the statistical possibility of getting it was decreased by this guy guarding him in a certain way, and these are the things that weren't showing up. Yeah, I mean, your man, uh, Angerson, used that exact phrase to know stats all-star. I'm sure he's, you know... Come Reading I'm a bit sure. of Michael Lewis. I don't, think, I don't think he coined the phrase himself. <laughs> but, um, well, yeah, I mean, the, the thing about Gerrard is, I was thinking about it, because obviously his last game over the weekend, he, he strikes me as being the exact opposite of that. He's a guy who is good at everything that is noticed by a crowd. Uh, if you slam the ball into the net from 30 <laughs> yards, that's the kind of thing people notice. Um, you know, if you, you know, the kind of sliding tackles, the kind of charging sort of runs that Eric gets, uh, everyone is, is, is uh, excited by. Jared does all that. Um, I suppose a computer looks at things slightly differently. I mean, it doesn't get excited about things. It just sort of logs events or kind of, you know, one tackle is, is like as, as good as another. In fact, maybe a big sliding tackle that a crowd all roars at is not as good as just one where you nick the ball and come away with it. It's not as good. Um, but one will one is better from a crowd's point of view than the other. So I just wondered if maybe, um, well, he just the fact that he seems to have like the opposite. I wonder if uh, maybe players like him will become more rare. They might, and I think that's disappointing if they do. Because Stephen Jarrett, regardless of his greatness or otherwise, and there's maybe debate about that. I don't think there's any debate that Stephen Jarrett being in the football world over the last. 10 or 15 years has probably been a good thing. Yeah, well, he's an unbelievably enjoyable footballer to watch playing football. Yeah. And I don't know if you put, can put a number on that, but, I mean, that's kind of... The whole idea of it is is you watch football for guys like... For guys to do stuff like what Steven Gerrard has done for the last 17 years. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think that over time, you know, that the kind of stuff that he does will actually be discouraged. It's like, oh, don't you realise how yeah. efficient this is? You know, I mean... You're shooting from... You, you, don't you realize that the probability of you scoring from that position in the field is less than 1%? Don't waste... You know, I don't want you wasting any more 1% balls. Don't take what any more 1% chances. What a beautiful 1%. If it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great 1%. I mean, maybe for a while, Jared was, was scoring 2% of those. You know, maybe maybe it was. But I don't know. I don't know. I'm not an actually... But yeah... Um, we'll talk to Jonathan Wilson a little bit about uh, Jared in a few minutes' time. David De Gea on his way out. Yeah, it looks like it. I mean, uh, sort of um, Louis van Gaal had this Alanis Morissette-like um, series of comments about how if uh, David De Gea goes to Real Madrid, it'll just it'll never be as good as it was at Manchester United. 
they won't love you like we love you, David. You know, don't you realize you've got it pretty good here? You ought to know that this is actually a pretty good uh, setup that you've got here. But it seems as though David Hay doesn't really care. Um, once again, the option of playing for, you know, one of the Spanish big two is better than playing for a team that isn't going to win the Premier League. <laughs> Probably isn't going to win the Premier League. Actually, a huge blow for Manchester United because he's been their best player. I mean, Gareth he does Bale so much. Would, Gareth Bale would want to have a pretty amazing season next year for that to be a good move. If if And that's, I, I think, what a lot of Man United fans are holding out for, that if this was just losing David De Gea, that would be very, very bad. Losing him and getting Gareth Bale, well, still not preferable, I would say, but... Not bad either. We talked a bit about this when you were away uh, last weekend. Uh, I was making the point that I'd never understand why whoever's charged with building a team, a sporting director, a manager back in the day, doesn't start with the goalkeeper and shell out loads of money on them. Because yeah. they're guaranteed to, to, to just guarantee your points if they're a goalkeeper of uh, stature. Yeah. One mistake I made, a listener pulled me up on it. Somebody tweeted saying that I had said that they're not as they're not prone to the tactical dimensions of the team in the way another player is as in you could get a good left winger for one team or a good creative player and he mightn't fit in well to another team and the point was made that actually goalkeepers now do have to fit in in certain ways Victor Valdez worked for Barcelona mightn't have worked necessarily for for other teams but that said De Gea is just a guaranteed 10-12 points a season guy regardless of, of whatever skills he has with his feet I think it's a huge he's going to make a huge difference to Real Madrid because one of the big problems that Real Madrid have is, is what a joke Iker Casillas has become over the last couple of years he's, he's just he's ridiculous you know he's, he's in the team for political reasons obviously Champions League uh, this, this year just Game after game, him throwing in goal after goal. Absolutely appalling. You know, I mean, the, the goal that knocked Real Madrid out of the Champions League this year, uh, the second Morata goal. It, I mean, the first Morata goal, it, the one in the away leg, I'm not sure David De Gea is going to spoon the ball to no. to Morata that way. Second one, I think David De Gea probably saves. I mean, we were, we were watching the game yesterday, the Manchester United-Arsenal game. The first thing that you said to me when that goal, I'm looking at Kieran here, the first thing you said when the goal went in, the deflected Walcott shot, De Gea saves that. You know what I mean? Valdez is a good goalkeeper, but it's the kind of thing that De Gea does. I think him playing for Real Madrid is going to make such a difference. One that. more and quick one. Maybe to mention United too. Well, um, the, the one other thing we should mention, I'm sure it's something we'll, we'll be coming back to, is this, um, <laughs> that UEFA's financial fair play, which was Michel Platini's big idea, and which had such a long lead in. I mean, years and years we were talking about this and how it was you know, going to come in and how it was going to sort everything out is apparently now going to be relaxed um, because everybody hates it. Finan- <laughs> financial, yeah, financial reasonably fair play. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just, um, I mean, essentially, uh, Platini says, the world is two-faced, but we will say this openly. I think we'll ease things, but it will be the executive committee who will decide if it's to be eased or something like that, and the outcome will be known by the end of June. I think the regulations have been very good. Uh, it's the clubs who voted for FFP, where the French press say it's not right. Abramovich can buy many players, and in France they cannot buy them. But if the Qataris had bought AC Milan, the French would say we should make financial fair play even tougher. As it is, the Italians wanted it east. So he's uh, essentially people are complaining that this is just entrenching um, the richest clubs by making it so that you can only spend a proportion of what you earn. You mean that the clubs who earn the most can spend the most, whereas uh, it used to we used to have a system whereby if a club came into money. 
it could suddenly, you know, it could actually build itself up. But now those clubs can't do that. Manchester City obviously sort of tried to do that, and they got fined nearly £50 million for this. I wonder, do they get their 50 Can they put their hand up and say, can we have our £50 million back? Because they do seem to be the, the ones who, who got burned by this, and maybe the only ones before it's um, not dispensed with, but, but rendered so loose that, that it, it almost might as well not be there. That's the end of Kennedy's report on sport. That's one of those things. Stop it! How many players can do this? Duffman can never die. He's 34 years old. That's one of those things. Duffman can never die. Only the actors who play him. No, he did. No, he did. Questions about me being the MVP of this league? I think he just said right there. Oh yeah, he's got more of a tandem. Sid Lowe is ready to chat about Barcelona becoming champions at the weekend. Sid um, in a match against Atletico, which is what decided it. But I think you believe that the other match, the game against Atletico in January, might have been the decisive moment in the La Liga race. Yeah, I mean Barcelona won the league exactly a year after they lost the league to Atletico Madrid at the Camp Nou. They went back to the Vicente Calderon this time and, and took the title back off them. But I think that that game on the 11th of January can be seen as, as, as a turning point. Bear in mind that their first game after Christmas was against Real Sociedad where they were beaten. Leo Messi was on the bench. The following day, there was an open training session for the sake of the fans so they could go and watch the players. Messi wasn't there. Then we saw the, the following day that the sporting director was sacked. His assistant, Carlos Puyol, walked. There was the cooling of presidential elections. The Barcelona board were looking for replacements for Luis Enrique, and it felt like they were in a, in a properly full-blown blown crisis. At the end of that week were Atletico Madrid, the, the team that they hadn't faced until since they'd lost the league titles of them last year. And it felt like a defeat there, and the whole thing would end. Instead, they won there. They then went six games without loss, lost six more games, draw six more games, and here they are now, having having lost just once in La Liga in an entire round of games since then. In other words, they've played every single team once. The only team to beat them is, is Malaga. But it's not just that, of course. It's the Champions League games as well. They've, they've lost just twice in 32, one of them being a, a, a game that didn't really matter that they lost the, one in, the second one in Munich. And I think that was the beginning of a sense of them kind of not necessarily finding a long-term solution to the crisis, but finding a way of, of, of living with it, finding a way of... of um, coming together and work towards a common goal, possibly even encountering, I think, an external enemy in, in the week in which all the media talk was was about pressure, was about differences of opinion between Leo Messi and, and, and Luis Enrique, the coach. And, and that game was kind of the beginning of, of this run. I remember Messi's performance in that game, and uh, he seemed to almost have, have unveiled a new bad guy persona. He, he played yeah. as though he was... He was hyperactive, wasn't he? It was, it was extraordinary. Yeah. He played as though he was angry, and... I remember uh, there's a story Thierry Henry has about um, Messi in training, getting angry over not being given a free kick, uh, getting up and in anger, dribbling past everybody on the team to score. And this is how Henry, Henry watched that and thought, OK, I've never seen anybody do that before. Uh, this is this is a kind of a unique thing. That I saw. But he seems to actually play quite well when he's angry. Maybe part of the secret to getting the best out of him is give him, giving him something to sort of grind his gears a little bit. Maybe. I mean, and certainly the way, the, the, the way I was looking at it when at the time um, and revisiting it again today was that sense that you know not that Barcelona had won in spite of the crisis but perhaps Barcelona won because of the crisis perhaps it gave them as you say that, that something to rebel against or, or, or some intangible sense of injustice to 
to to encourage them to play, to encourage them to be more active, to encourage them to be more aggressive on the, on the pitch, or or maybe even that that, that sense of of pressure um, and and crisis and, and media attention actually gave them a common enemy to to cohere against that collectively they could they could come together to, to kind of face up to, to to some perceived threat from the outside and 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 i think i think there's an element of that that, that Messi that night i think the thing that really struck me in that game against Atletico madrid in january was, was just as you say that there was there was a touch of aggression about it but just how active he was just how 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 hyperactive he was in fact and and, and perhaps you know i think it's easy to say with hindsight of course but even at the time I think we looked at this and thought, this feels like something's just shifted. It feels like something's changed. Mm. Uh, another thing that shifted uh, at a slightly earlier point of the season, but I suppose was ultimately quite important, is the fact that uh, when Luis Suarez started off with the team, he was playing on the right side. And after a few games, Lionel Messi went to the right side and Luis Suarez was in the middle. And suddenly they're both, well, certainly Suarez started playing a lot better. Uh, and Messi, you know, has, has been playing, you know, he didn't start scoring fewer goals because he was playing on the right and so it worked out really well. But whose idea was that? Because uh, there seems to be quite a few suggestions that, in fact, it wasn't Luis Enrique. Usually you would credit the coach for a decision like that, but actually Lionel Messi's idea to do that. Yeah, well, that's a shift as well that, that really comes into focus in that Atletico Madrid game with, with Messi slightly further to the right and, and Suarez through the middle. Um, and there was an interview around about a month ago um, in which Luis Suarez said, I think quite inadvertently, I don't think it was an attempt to, to make his manager look daft. Um, he said, well, yeah, there was a game in which, which Messi was out on the right for a moment and I was in the middle and Messi could see that it was working. And he kind of said to me, you stay there, you stay there, it's all right. It, 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 this looks good, you stay there. And that that was the beginning of us doing it. Now, and I think I think Suarez was just giving an honest appraisal of, of, of the mechanisms, or if you like, the, the coincidences that made this happen. Um, but of course, when this was relayed back to Luis Enrique, he didn't take it well because it was relayed back as if to say, "Well, this is nothing to do with you, Pat. This is this is to do with Messi seeing it during the game." And Luis Enrique responded um, at the time, and as I say, we're talking about around about a month ago. Uh, he responded by saying. Oh, I see. So, so when we win, it's because the players have decided. When we lose, of course, it's my fault. Which I, I think that one one way of looking at it would be to say that that there was a kind of a natural falling into positions of players of Messi embracing that idea, and of, and and maybe of Luis Enrique being intelligent enough to reinforce it rather than necessarily to have taken that decision himself. Sid, how do you rate this Barcelona championship-winning team with the top Guardiola side? I think. It's very difficult to, to, to answer that because I think what we're seeing, certainly, we, we've seen a, a shift in Barcelona and we've talked about this a lot, um, haven't we, about the, the shift in style, the fact that this is a team that's perhaps defined more by the front three than, than the middle, which it used to be the case, that therefore is a, a team less about control, that's shifting its identity away from what, what it used to be. And yet I actually think that we've seen in the last six weeks at least that, that perhaps that idea that we had doesn't stand up in quite the same way anymore. Because certainly when they went to Manchester, when they went to Paris, they went there and dominated. They went there and controlled. They didn't just counter-attack brilliantly. Um, it's true that they beat Bayern Munich 3-0 at home, largely counter-attacking with less of the ball um, than Bayern Munich. Only the second time in 442 games that that had happened. They'd have less than 50% of the possession. But of course, it's Bayern Munich, so you kind of accept the counter-attacking game. And it was a technical counter-attacking game. It wasn't just a long ball over the top. And so that meant, I think, that over the last six weeks, we started to see the, the midfielders playing key roles again, not just the front three. And I think it also meant that when it came to the second leg 
uh, Bayern Munich and Guardiola described them as the best counter-attacking team in the world. What would once sound like a like a kind of a backhanded compliment, or maybe even a direct attack on them? What would once have sounded like dirty words, all of a sudden made you think, actually, that that that's a real compliment because they're doing that as well. So in that sense, I think we're seeing, seeing a team with more variety, a team mixing it up differently. But I think it's very hard to judge any team against that Guardiola side, certainly the second Champions League final against Manchester United, for it, just for its sheer dominance of games. Yeah, I, I mean, Owen's question there, as you said, raises an interesting question itself. I mean, he said the top Guardiola side, but there's, you know, nobody's quite sure what that is. I, I don't know if you heard... Uh, That's right, and, 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 you know, I mean, I don't know about you, but this, this side, um, and, and maybe I'm allowing myself to be swayed almost too much by the, by the front three, by their personalities, by the way that they play... But this is closer maybe to the very first Guardiola side when you've got Omri playing Neymar, Suarez playing Eto, and Messi, of course, playing Messi um, and back in a slightly more right-sided position. Although in recent weeks we've seen him all over the pitch and the weekend it was extraordinary watching him play as a... I don't even know what position he was playing. He was playing the I am absolutely everywhere position. <laughs> uh, the, the, the ubiquitous, the, the central ubiquitous midfielder, I suppose. Um, and and so, yeah, there is a doubt about which Guardiola side we're talking about. And also this, these are these go through periods. So, of course, you have a Guardiola side that plays like that and perhaps is more exciting but less controlling. Then a Guardiola side that starts to control and gets confronted by Locke's defences. And then maybe that's one of the reasons why this team has evolved in a different way because it wants to pull defences out, encourage them into the game a bit to, to build space themselves. PK said something interesting the other day which, which I thought was, was quite a telling remark. He said, our games no longer, look, no longer look like handball matches. And, of course, in handball, it's basically the ball going backwards and forwards in the, in the, across the face of a defence waiting for a gap to open for someone to shoot. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's more fun in a way. I mean, you probably heard Gary Neville talking to Graham Hunter Enjoyable. recently, and he, he expressed the opinion that, well, he preferred the 2008-2009 team, uh, essentially because he thought it, it just had more variety, had more possible solutions, whereas the, the 2011 team uh, was maybe a bit more of a monoculture. I've got to say, though, I think that 2011 team probably would have beaten the other team. It was just nobody had ever done anything like that. That was a, that was almost a unique moment in, in football history. It was well, I mean, I wonder what your personal reference is. Well, I mean, exactly. I mean, this is the thing. I I, I feel like for for a kind of a sense of technical perfection, a sense of having taken to something that we hadn't seen before, that was so um, clearly identified with that team. That is what Barcelona do. Then I suppose the, the 2011 team far more so. But of course, there's an enjoyment in kind of allowing the other team into the game, in, in being more more varied, in being more excited. In, 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 I mean, because, you know, this year, in, certainly until, until these last six or seven weeks, there have been games when Barcelona haven't played well, but they've won on the counter-attack. And, and rather than looking at it and saying, wow, aren't they brilliant on the counter, you could say, well, that was very exciting and very exhilarating, but they're living extremely dangerously. And I think one of the things that Guardiola did was was reduce the, 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 the luck factor, if you like, to the, to the very, very smallest possible amount. Sid, uh, Madrid, meanwhile, have a bit of rebuilding to do and it looks like they're going to start by uh, right at the back there in the goalkeeping position with David De Gea. Is that a done deal? Uh, it's not a done deal. Uh, I think, actually, I, I was quite struck by, by what Lewis van Gaal said because it's not often that you hear a manager talk quite as honestly as that. Um, I think he, he hinted very, very clearly that it's, it's a done deal in the sense that, that David De Gea would very much like to go to Real Madrid. Real Madrid would very much like to have him. Um, but that he has to make that final decision. And then, of course, as, as Van Gaal said, there are three parties. The most important is the player. If the player is then absolutely determined, then, then a deal has to be done. So it's not yet a done deal because, because Manchester United and Real Madrid will have to talk about it. He will end up 
I'd be very, very surprised if he doesn't end up at Real Madrid. My very small doubt would be whether it happens now um, or, or whether he sees out the contract. Of course, Manchester United would be sensible to try and sell him while they can. I think it would be very, very surprising indeed if he doesn't turn up. And, and I would imagine it would be this summer. I mean, it, it does seem as though the moment Victor Valdez joined Manchester United was a fairly big indicator that maybe David De Gea was going to be leaving. Because why would Victor Valdez go and sit there? I mean, he only made his debut for them over the weekend. Uh, why would he sign up to sit there on the bench watching this brilliant goalkeeper if he didn't think there was a fair enough chance that he would actually be the number one goalkeeper next season? Well, I, I, I think, Ken, I might, I might be wrong, but I think we talked about this at the very t- at the time. Um, and, and this is a question that I asked of someone quite close to the Valdez deal. And I said to him, well, why is he going there when, when, of course, he had the option of going to Liverpool? Now, it's not that I'm saying you should go to Liverpool, not to Manchester United, but, of course, we all knew that had he gone to Liverpool, he would have been first choice. And the response was exactly as you've just suggested. The response was, he's not going to United to be a substitute. Um, Van Gaal believes he's good enough. In fact, as good as, um, as David De Gea. And, of course, lurking in the background, although perhaps we didn't really know it then, although this was the indication of it, was that suggestion that De Gea had already intimated that, that, that perhaps he would like to go back to Spain. All right, Sid, we'll leave it at that. Thanks a million. My pleasure. Every so often I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to bite someone. John Hayes, I'm talking about on. Yeah. John Hayes. Now I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. Where do you stand on it, Ken? 2009 versus... Well, yeah, you've, you've put a little nuance in there. 2009, Pep's 2019, Pep's 2011 team, or Luis Enrique's 2015 team? I thought the 2011 team was um, the best. You don't agree with Gary Neville? No, I don't agree with him because I thought... I mean, I can, see where, I can see where he's coming from, and I understand his point. I think and he explains a, it so persuasively that yeah. you're thinking, oh, yeah, he could well be right here. But I thought that the 2011 team took things to a level that just no, nobody had. It was, it was like a futuristic football of the future, you know, in, in the present day. And wasn't that kind of what Neville was saying more so? That he, just, he preferred the 2019. But he preferred that- a, solidly cons- a solid conservative, you know, you got a couple of big lads, you got... Yeah, there was a, there was a conservative bent to it. To be honest, you know, he comes from a Manchester United background. He was saying, for instance, the Bayern team as well. The Bayern team that won the Champions League, the Heinkes team, was mm. you know to his eye a better team. And the, these are were more sort of all round teams. Neville obviously is a guy who prefers that a kind of an all round, uh, you know, ability for this. You know, if you you know to do it in a in a game, but then also to do it on a wet Tuesday night in Stoke appears to be. Yeah. <laughs> like I hate that cliche with, cliche with like every fibre of my being if you want to box we're going to box if you want to play football we're going to play football yeah right. so that's that's Gary Neville uh, Kieran McGinney they, they, they believe in, in this multi-dimensional thing but I just think that what the the Barcelona team of 2011 nobody could lay a glove on them mm. it was they didn't have to box they didn't have to do anything else other than what they did nobody could beat that team it was the best team I've ever seen I mean it was it was um, okay, the 2019 won more stuff. Uh, but it wasn't, I don't think they were ever as dominant as that 
I think the 2011 team is made. Although I, I think this uh, current one is looking is looking pretty good. Definitely the front line is the best that they've ever had. If you haven't heard our fo- first podcast produced here from San Francisco, do have a listen. We chatted to US Murph inside his, uh, well, the, uh, the place that many of his dreams have been realized as a sports fan, as a sports broadcaster, AT&T Park, the home of the San Francisco Giants. And we also spoke to Seamus McDonough, an Irishman based in San Francisco for many years. He was a, a Golden Gloves champion in New York back in the 1980s in amateur boxing, went pro, had a reasonable career up to the point that he fought Evander Holyfield, didn't fight a huge amount after that and uh, had a lot of issues away from the ring, which he was very honest in talking about. So uh, well worth checking that out if you do get a chance right now. We're joined by Jonathan Wilson to talk about Stephen Gerrard. Jonathan, his uh, Anfield career is finally finished. Uh, so I suppose we can say conclusively one way or the other, or can we, was Stephen Gerrard a great player? Yes, I think so. Um... I mean, it's it's great with slight qualifications, um, but I, I guess it ended badly. You know, the last season's been very anticlimactic. I mean, last season was very nearly the, the absolutely perfect end for him. And unfortunately, you know, he, although he'd done many great things during the season, it was his slip which, which ended up um, you know, being the, 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 the blow that stopped him winning the title. So there has been, I think, a sense of anticlimax this season. Um, partly the way the season's gone partly his relationship with Brendan Rodgers doesn't seem great but I, I think if you look back at sort of 15, 16 years of achievement um, you know, he has done some great things um, and notably the you know, Champions League final in 2005 and the FA Cup final in 2006 to, you know, to, to, to have two finals where you play an absolutely decisive role um, I think there's very few players who have that and, and to do it for the the club that you've played for all your career that hasn't won other stuff um, in that time, or yeah, hasn't won much other stuff in that time, um, makes it makes it all the greater. I mean, the, one of the chants uh, that you'll often hear about him is that you've never seen Gerard win the league, or have you ever seen Gerard win the league? Um, do you think he should have? I mean, he had enough goals. Uh, do you think the odds against him were always too great, or should there have been a year in which they did actually get over the line? Uh, possibly. I mean, uh, I guess they came close twice, once under Aftermeters, um when they lost the league by about four points, I think it was in the end, wasn't it, in 2008-9, and then last season. But, yeah, Liverpool have been... They, they, you know, Liverpool managed the 90s very badly from a financial point of view, and then they've had a, all kinds of issues with ownership since then. Um, the, you know, the new opportunities that the Premier League opened up, which Manchester United seized with, with two hands, Liverpool didn't. Um, and there's you know, various reasons why that happens. Um, partly, I, I guess, because they had been so successful, they didn't really see a need to change. Partly, I think, one of the after effects of Hillsborough was the club, um, you know, it, it, it looked to itself for solace, and as a result, perhaps wasn't as as, a, as open to the opportunities as something like Manchester United was. Um, so I, I think had they won the league at any point in the last 15 years, it would actually be an extraordinary achievement because of the financial uh, disparity that was against them. Uh, I guess here they didn't, well, it wasn't that far away in, in 2001. Um, but I, I don't think it was ever a season when they were the favourites to win the title. I think every year would have been a slight surprise if they'd done so. I mean, just watching this thing that happened at Anfield uh, on Saturday evening, I mean, Jared was saying... Afterwards, you're the best supporters in the world, and so on. And this maybe is one thing that they do, you know, do better than other clubs at this time. Is this kind of idolatry, this um, some would say sentimentality about their heroes? Do you think 
that this is something which has happened, uh, which is kind of Liverpool used to be known as an unsentimental club. I mean, in the in the time that they were successful, nobody would say that about them now. Um, is this uh, a, a symptom of a lack of success? The way the club has maybe turned in on itself, become obsessed with its history, become obsessed with the heroes like um, like Stephen Gerrard, who seemed to connect it to the past, or has that mentality maybe been one of the reasons why they've stopped being successful in the last two decades, two and a half decades? Well, I mean, that's, that's a very good question. We, we, yeah, which comes first? But I, mean, I think you're right. I think that under Shankly and Paisley, um, Liverpool, well, certainly under Paisley, maybe, maybe I, I, you know, Shankly, I think, is a slightly misremembered figure. I think the, the legend he put out was not necessarily uh, reflective of the truth. You know, he liked to play the hard man, and I think there was a, a great beating sentimental heart beneath that. Um, I, I think if you look back at, at his selections for Desert Island Discs, um, which he he did just before the FA Cup final in 1965, and it was just, the players listened to it, listened to a recording of it on the on the coach on the way to Wembley, and it's all sort of very sentimental, you know, uh, Celtic ballads, and you know he, he he was a very sentimental man, and I think he sort of uh, when he had to break up that first great team after the FA Cup defeat at Watford, I think he found that very very difficult, and you know, there's the stories of. Um, when he first had to drop Ian St John and not being able to tell him face to face and I think it was a game at Newcastle and Ian St John found out he wasn't in the team because you know, one of the stewards at Newcastle told him that, that Chankley couldn't actually face telling him Paisley I think was very hard and very ruthless in how he dealt with players although his public image was the complete opposite you know, he, he played the, the sort of cuddly uncle um, so yeah, yeah, I think that certainly from a managerial point of view Paisley brought in a, a real professionalism, a real hard edge. Whether that was reflected in the crowd, I'm not sure. I think the crowd really warmed to the sentimentalism of Shankly. That was one of the reasons he was so popular, was that he understood how to tap into that. Um, but I, I think, yeah, it has become more pronounced as, as success on the pitches has declined. And, and one of the reasons Jared is such a huge figure over the last 15 years is that he has been, without question, their greatest player in the last 15 years. I mean, you can make a case that Luis Suarez is a better player, but in terms of what he means to Liverpool, Gerard clearly is greater than Suarez. Um, and, and that's a symptom of, of not having had a huge number of great players. And I'm sure you, know, you look at other clubs who've um, had a lack of success. I mean, you know, I, I, it's, it's, a, it's a different scale completely, but yeah, if you said to me, who's the most popular player Sunderland have had in, in my time supporting them? been Hilliarko. He hasn't been like the best player, but he was the best player at a time when Tottenham had no good players. Um, and so he was sort of the one beacon of hope and he was when everybody attached everything to. And Gerard for far longer in a, and as a far greater player than Arco, you know, that that effect is, is magnified by 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 a huge factor. I don't know uh, how long Liverpool are going to be waiting for the success to return, Jonathan, because almost overlooked in all of this the weekend is the fact they lost 3-1 to Crystal Palace. A pretty poor display, really. Is there an argument that Brendan that uh, Alan Pardew, for example, looks at least as good a manager as Brendan Rodgers at the moment? Well, I think you always, when you're assessing managers, you've always got to look at what they're doing. I, I think that um, I think it's become increasingly true that you need a type of management or a type of manager in the in the Champions League another type of manager to, to keep you in, in, the, in the Premier League and another type of manager maybe to get you out of the Championship and um, you, you look at 
you know, I was watching the playoff final, uh, semi-final on, on Saturday and, and looking at Mick McCarthy and thinking, well, he's a man who regularly takes teams up and never keeps them up. And it, it reminded me of, of a line that a, a former Manchester City director had, had said to me that um, as soon as City got promoted under Joe Royal, he, he said he regrets that they didn't just sack Joe Royal on the spot for getting them promoted so so they could bring in somebody who would actually keep them in the, in the, in the Premier League. And I, so I think Pardew is fantastic for a club like Palace with limited resources, limited ambitions. Um, but Crystal Palace have had less possession than any other team in the Premier League this season. Now, that's fine if you're Palace. Is that going to play with a top four, top five team? I'm not sure. Is that going to win your games in the Champions League? I'm not sure. I mean, you know, we talk about Chelsea and the, the reactive football they've played when they need to, but they don't do it in every game. You know, they, they, they do it against the big sides. And Chelsea, I think, is still in the top top five for possession this season. Uh, so, you know, when they're playing teams lower down the league, they, they, they do hold the ball. Their Pardew teams don't do that. And Newcastle is very direct in the approach as well. So I think Pardew is an excellent manager at a certain level. I think Rodgers is potentially very good at, 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 at a Champions League level. I think there are several question marks about him, but there's also several things in, in his favour. Well, if he were uh, John Henry, I mean, John Henry's going to make the decision, I suppose, in the next couple of weeks, what he's going to do. Uh, and he has shown himself to be quite hard before. I mean, in the case of Kenny Dalglish, uh, you could argue a similar season to the one Brendan Rodgers has just had with Liverpool, uh, big spending at the beginning. Um, Dalglish managed to win a trophy, whereas Rodgers got to two semifinals. Dalglish got to a couple of finals. The cup uh, thing obviously didn't mean anything. Uh, to John Henry. I'm wondering how you would assess Brendan Rodgers. Would you be inclined to take him on uh, for one more season? It's, I, mean, I think it's, it, it's really difficult because this has been a very unusual kind of inconsistency that the season's fallen into three parts. There was the first part of not being particularly good, the middle part of being when you after the switch to after the, the evening of tea and toast and the switch to 3 4 2 and that long unbeaten run when he played some really good football I mean particularly I think if you look at the the semi-final against Chelsea in the Capital One Cup they played really well in those two games and, and yeah, absolutely matched Chelsea and, you know the toss of the coin he went through that, that tie and then you know some of the, the collapse towards the end of the season which um, I don't know that's partly been conditioned by what's going on with Raheem Sterling it's sort of a general sense of there's nothing left to play for general weariness so you, you, you can make excuses for that last third of the season and you can say, well, the middle third of the season was when he solved the problems of, of Suarez not being there anymore and Sturridge's injury and Balotelli not fitting in. Um, so that, you know, it, it's, it's very hard to make an assessment this season because there's been some very good stuff and some very bad stuff. I, 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 I think if, if I were John W. Henry, I, I think I'd be sounding out Jürgen Klopp and seeing if he's available and seeing what it might cost. And if Klopp were available, I'd probably be installing him. Other than that, I think Rodgers is, or, you know, in the absence of any you know, really stellar candidate other than Klopp, he might take the job. I think you give Rodgers another, another roll of the dice. All right, Jonathan, brilliant stuff. Thanks, mate. Cheers, thanks. If you were John Henry again? I would. I think I, think I agree with, with Jonathan, actually. Not much point getting rid of the guy if you don't have any idea who's going to come in. No, uh, but I'd definitely be, be looking at the market. You know, I mean, you've got, you've always got. It's the same way Rogers would say, "Well, we're always in the market for for good players. You know, if good players become available, I don't think the club the club's attitude to their managers should necessarily be any different." Managers know that as well, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think so. I think Brendan Rogers understands that he's had he's had three years. The club is more or less back where they were when he took over. 
last season they scored 101 goals, led in 50. The job, as he said, was to you know bring the conceded total down, and they've done that. They've let in eight fewer goals with one less game played. They've scored um, 50 fewer goals, so they've lost half the goals while conceding 16% fewer, and it's not great. It's not great. It's it's going to make the end of season review uncomfortable without even getting into the deeper analytics of it. Just those no. bare numbers probably don't look absolutely amazing. Yeah, I mean, John Henry is an analytically minded man, but I'm sure those numbers will have impressed him. I mean, you know, he may he may still say, "Look, Brendan, there's always going to be teething problems with a, with a project like this." You know, you think the pyramids were built in a day, or even three years. Maybe they were built in three years. I mean, how much longer than three years could the pyramids realistically have taken? They're just piles of stone arranged in. Well, yeah, you saw the the logs that they rolled those big. I mean, I'm I'm sorry, I don't know. I don't have how long. How long did the moon the moon landings take? Or the Golden Gate Bridge? We should be talking about something local here to us again. You know, they could say how how long did the Golden Gate Bridge take to build? I'm going to say less than three years. So listen, if Brendan Rodgers can't win the league with Liverpool in less time than it took to. Create a structure the size of the Golden Gate Bridge, and I don't know what we're talking about here. I mean, it's not uh, you know, it's not rocket science, but I think the computer that took (laughs) Apollo thirteen to to the moon was you know like a like the calculator on Nokia mobile phone from nineteen ninety eight. So that was able to crack rocket science in nineteen sixty eight. I don't know or sixty nine. I'm just going to tell you how long the Golden Gate Bridge. Took to build. Thanks, Ken. Do you want me to talk about a few other things before you get there while it, you're uh, looking up the old internet there? It took four four years, five months. Well, so. Brendan Rogers has a year and a half left <laughs> before uh, I start getting the sharpening my knives. We're in San Francisco all week. I wandered down towards Golden Gate Park yesterday, Murph, to have a look at the Bay to Breakers 12 yeah. kilometer run. This is a bit of a San Francisco institution. They bill it as the world's oldest annual foot race, going on for more than 100 years, apparently. So thousands of runners go out from the bay out west through the city and they finish at Ocean Beach wearing fairly wild costumes, I must say. Uh, anything from my old nemesis, the giant banana, there were quite yep. a few of those, to one guy carrying an entire basketball net on his back. I mean, we're talking the net at the top and the backboard, but also the massive stanchion that comes down. He was struggling badly, that guy, that I must seems, say. I think it's just a very uncomfortable thing to try and look oh, around. It's funny you mentioned comfort, Murph. A lot of people, I mean, a lot of people took the mm-hmm. opinion that the only way to be truly comfortable in this world is to go out there, as God intended it to be, Murph. The birthday suit. Butt naked. Just well, not a stitch of clothing on quite a few of the competitors here. And of course, in the middle of this uh, rather wild scene, I spot one lad strolling along wearing full Kilkenny hurling kit. It could have been the Mayo jersey. That was probably there if I'd stayed around. It just have annoyed me too much. If there was a man wearing a Mayo jersey in that run, it would have been. I can't know. It's an amazing, it's an amazing feat of Irish immigration. If you're interested in visiting if you are interested in visiting this neck of the woods in future, Aer Lingus now fly daily direct from Dublin to San Francisco. If you're over here now, uh, do come to Foley's Irish Bar on Wednesday night. Just drop us an email, settingcaptains at irishtimes.com if you're interested in that. Show one is already out. I've already plugged it a couple of times, but we, we really enjoyed meeting up at US Murph, so hopefully you'll enjoy listening to that. More podcasts from here later on this week. We're off to check on Mr. Pushek and hopefully not overfeed him as we have been doing so far. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Kenny. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much for listening. Chat soon. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.